I think one of the, and this fits under this, but a big mistake I used to make personally that kind of fit under this category was not um, getting so focused on today's workout and not really thinking about tomorrow's workout. And so the same thing, like I, I would get, uh, you know, hyper-focused on today's workout. Like I need to do today as good as possible, but you're not thinking about the consequences that has on your future training, which I think is what we're saying. Howdy, howdy. Welcome back to the Matchbox Podcast presented by Ignition Coach Co. I'm your host, Adam Saban, and in today's episode, I'll be joined by my co-host, Andrew, as well as routine guests, Dylan and Drew. The topic of today's show is the top five mistakes that everyday cyclists make in their training. Some of these mistakes may seem obvious to you, but a couple of them hopefully will surprise you too. As always, if you like what you hear, share this with your friends and leave us a five-star review. If you want us to cover a specific training-related topic in a future episode, you can drop an email to info at ignitioncoachco.com with email titled The Matchbox Podcast, or send us a DM on uh, Instagram or one of the other uh, social media platforms. Oh yeah, one more thing. If we sound different during today's show, that's because we upped our podcasting game by getting our hands on some new recording equipment. We're constantly seeking for new ways to improve the show, so let us know what you think. All right, let's get into it. All right, back in the studio. What's going on, guys? Got the whole crew today. Mm. Uh, Dillman, Dylan Johnson, Andrew Jeanette. Back at it. Yeah. So Sorry today I we're gonna be last week. Sound like a <laughs> sound like a fun topic. Yeah, it was fun. We uh had a lot of good conversations. I felt like it was one of those where we could have even gone longer, but uh trying to keep the show somewhat concise. Uh, <laughs> to be completely <laughs> honest, I don't even remember what we talked about. establishing threshold threshold. determining threshold yeah that's what it is which is just a fancy way of saying uh yeah how do you find your ftp Mm -hmm. (laughs) i do remember yeah so today we're going to be getting into the top five training mistakes that everyday cyclists make in their you know day-to-day training um but first let's uh Let's talk about uh, a little bit of racing. Anyone anyone do some bike racing this weekend? Am I the only one? I think uh, so, man. Very, I think I'm the only one. I raced two weekends ago, and I, I didn't talk about it last week. Oh, yeah, let's hear that first. Go for it. Because that's, <laughs> you know, you did better than I did. So You don't want to talk about Barry Roubaix? Mm, I'll talk about it. but I, I We weren't even able to get Drew to tell us what happened at Barry Roubaix. So must he was saving it for the show. No, it was traumatic. <laughs> Yeah, do we want to start with the bad news or the good news? Because I've got the bad news. Dylan's got the good news. Let's let's start with the bad news. I want to hear what happened to Barry Roubaix. All right. To sum it all up, I wasn't recovered from the 32-mile run I did two weeks prior. So as soon as the pace got hard, I uh, did not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I stuck in there for the first 20 miles. It's only a 63-mile gravel race, and it's pretty fast. Uh, this year was pretty exciting. Yeah. I was about to say the biggest thing about this year was the conditions because the temperature dropped like the day before and then it snowed about an inch the night before. So everybody was freaking out about the roads being muddy, but just like at the mid South, it was like not that bad. Um, Mm -hmm. the road, the gravel roads or the dirt roads up in Michigan are like 
those are just what the roads are. So they're super beaten in, like really hard packed. So it would take a lot of moisture for it to get soft. And I kind of figured that. So it still raced pretty much like a road race. Um, it was pretty cold. The, the road was a little wet, but it wasn't like we were soaked or anything like that. It's um, going to sound a little weird, but the pictures were beautiful. Like the contrast yeah, cool. between like the dirt road mm-hmm. and the just snow covered <clears throat> trees was awesome. Yeah. When I was out there, I was like, it was just the dirt and the road was the road was all dirt, but then everything off to the sides was white, which was pretty cool. Mm. But yeah, a couple big hitters were there. Um, Adam Ro- Roberge ended up winning. Um, a good buddy of mine, Alexi Vermeulen, who I raced with as a junior, was there, and I got to catch up with him a little bit. Um, so yeah, it was pretty pretty good field. Um, the Roadhouse, I raced, I raced with the Texas Roadhouse crew, and they, those guys were super pumped about it because that, that was kind of their first big gravel event. And so here are a bunch of roadies like just pumped to do their first gravel race. And uh, they did pretty good. Uh, Kyle Perry got fifth, who's also an ignition coach co-coach. And then uh, our teammate, um, oh my gosh, Aaron Beebe got seventh. And so it's pretty sweet. Um, we had another teammate kind of crash in the last mile, but he would have been right there too, like top 10. So it's pretty cool. I think the way it played out was four guys went up the road. So Kyle actually won the field sprint. Um, so it was pretty good. Um, for myself, I, I got dropped like 20 miles in, um, and then was just bouncing from group to group after that. Were you warm Mm. enough? Yeah. Um, I, I ended up taking off my vest. So yeah, I was pretty warm. Um, I, I just went with like a pretty thick base layer. I didn't overdress. Um, but I, like I said, two weeks ago, like if you start with a vest, it's not a big deal. Like, cause you can shed that and put it in a pocket, which is what I did. So yeah, I didn't make the same mistake that I did at the mid South and wear too much. Nice. So Drew, so was the pace super hard from the gun because it was such a short race? Yeah, I was surprised at how hard it went. Um, either either I wasn't feeling good, which I think was a part of it, and the pace was too high. So I think it was like both of those things at the same time happening. Because I went up to Kyle, my teammate, and uh, was like, man, we're going a lot harder than I thought we would for the first 15 miles. And he looked at me and goes, man, this is easy. And I'm like, I ain't having a good day. That is not what you want to hear. That is not what you want to hear. And so I uh, quickly after that was like, yeah, maybe it's just me. But I do think, and I heard several other people say that it was pretty fast. The first 10 miles, like guys were attacking left and right. It was pretty much felt like we were racing a crit almost, but yeah, it's definitely different from like the mid South where it's more of a grind because it's a little bit longer. 63 miles in the gravel world is very short. Yeah. Plus it's a finish time was under three hours, right? For the the leader, for the other people. Yeah. (laughs) Plus, it's a pretty fast course, so your you know average speed, I'm guessing, was like 22, 23 or something. Yeah, it was fast, and everybody talked like there's not any really climbs. Um, there's these three, these three, I'll call them rollers. Everybody talks about them, like the three sisters. Those are the three mm-hmm. big hills, and they're they're like two miles into the race, so you're 100 percent fresh, and they're just rollers, and so it's like. Everybody talks about them as if they're like freaking out duets, but they're just these little rollers in Michigan. It's just kind of funny that they get these, these three little rollers have the name, the three sisters, and it sounds like all BA, but they're not mm-hmm. that big of a deal. 
Yeah. Drew, did you make any like last minute setup changes because of the conditions or like the wet? No, I had one bike with wheels already set up. Um, And like I said, I mean, I didn't think that the roads were going to be that muddy or anything either. So my teammates were like, since it was their first gravel race and all that, they were like freaking out, like nonstop chitter chatter about pressure and tires and all this. And I'm just like sitting there watching a movie, like whatever (laughs) it'll be what it is. Um, I was going to say, and I know we talked a little bit off air about the, uh, about the, what do I want to say at the mid South, the lack of, um, I don't know what you call like patrolling through the town. Like we had to stop Mm -hmm. at red lights and stuff like that at the mid South, which is kind of, ridiculous in my opinion but at this race they actually pay their volunteers which i guess you don't i don't know if you would even call them volunteers if you pay them but that's another yeah (laughs) but they pay their volunteers and every single turn every single turn had two volunteers and there was like a hundred turns like so and when you went into registration there was like 50 old ladies all handing out numbers and they had it categorized by like a through D 62 miles. So there's like 20 different stations to pick up your numbers. Like you didn't have to wait in line at all. It was as far as the efficiency and safety goes, like, dude, they're doing it right. Um, like every other gravel race should talk to the promoters of Barry Bay, see what they're doing and then implement that strategy at their races. Cause they're like killing it. I mean, to have a, to have people on every single turn stopping traffic and making sure it's safe, I thought was like, yeah, that's good. Like that's a, that's taking it up a notch. Yeah. I, th- I think well, the promoter is Matt Acker. He's like a yeah renowned, uh, endurance cyclist, you know, gravel and mountain biking. And I think it helps to have the promoter be someone who's like super experienced in bike racing. Like they just know what the athlete mm-hmm. wants in the moment. For sure. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's, it's funny. So I didn't race last weekend, but if I was going to, the race I would have done was Love Valley Roubaix, which is, it's like a gravel omnium, like starts with a hill climb and then you have one or two gravel stages and it's, you know, in like mid North Carolina, it's like super hilly, super, super hard starts in a old cowboy town, like a fake, hmm. fake cowboy town. And I was sort of thinking to myself like, okay, so you have Barry Roubaix in Michigan this weekend and there's like 5,000 people there. Then you have Love Valley Roubaix, which, like to me, is a more appealing race. It's just like harder, and there's more days, and it's not 30 degrees there. Um, and there's only like 500 people there. So I was like, well, you know, why? Why is it so uneven? Um, Dude, Michigan but, but I, has a crazy cycling scene, man. Like it's the same thing with the Iceman, right? Or uh, yeah. Lumberjack isn't quite as big, but but you know, Michigan people. Uh, love the lumberjack too i don't know it's just because it's in michigan and for for some reason that i can't figure out michigan has a lot of cyclists yeah well and the whole midwest is like has a fantastic cycling scene and i think or a fantastic racing scene is what i should say Mm -hmm. and my theory has always been that the cycling there is less fun so people are more (laughs) into racing yeah totally i think that's why the chicago cross cup was is you know such a huge hit like there's no terrain yeah. to put on like exciting road races or mountain bike races. Um, but you can put it on an awesome cross course basically anywhere. 
All right, now for the good news. Let's hear it, Dylan. Come on. All right, so how you how you almost beat a former world tour gravel pro? Right. <laughs> uh, so I did the Croatan Buck Fifty, which is a hundred and fifty mile gravel race on the coast of North Carolina. Um, and being that it's on the coast, it's it's super flat. I think there was like three hundred feet of elevation gain over a hundred and fifty miles. If you can imagine how flat that is. So normally I wouldn't say this about a course like that, but it probably played into my favor because uh, Ian Boswell showed up and he was definitely the man to beat. And he is an insane, insanely good climber. So being that there were no climbs on the course, that was, that was probably actually an advantage for me. Um, and, and yeah, I mean the race, the way the race kind of played out is that, um, the group kind of got smaller and smaller as the race progressed. It was just a race of attrition. Um, there were a couple technical sections, uh, like there was a section through a field that would, that had a little bit of single track in it. And then there was a, a mud section that got drier and drier as the day progressed, but it was kind of like, you know, you needed a little bit of cyclocross skills to make it through. Um, and, uh, it came up, came down to a, a three up sprint finish, um, with me, Ian Boswell and William Harrison. And, uh, I I've raced William Harrison before and he, he seems to have no interest in doing any sort of sprint finish. So it was kind of just me and Ian Boswell. <laughs> and I, and I don't think he would mind me saying that either. He's straight up told me, he's like, you can have this. I don't want to sprint you. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> um, so it was, it, it was basically just a sprint between me and, and Ian and, um, the race finishes on an oval car track and the, they place the finish line basically like right after, uh, one of the corners on the track. It's like you do the corner and then immediately there's the finish. And Ian set himself up great for this finish. Like he, he led into the sprint, which normally I I would prefer to be second wheel in a sprint, but he led into the sprint, which means that he, he just hugged the wall on the, you know, the, the wall is on the left side, which means that I couldn't come on the inside of him. I had to go around the outside and we were basically starting our sprint in the corner. So, um, yeah, I mean, he just had, he just had great tactics in that sprint. And I think, you know, when we crossed the line, he had probably half a bike length on me. So you were, you were coming. I, I, I don't know. I mean, if the, if the sprint had been, or if the finish line had been like a little further back, you know, I don't know. Who knows knows what would have happened? Like a banked track? Slightly banked. Yeah. Slightly banked. I'm, it's not, it wasn't, it wasn't steep banks by any means. It was just, uh, I don't know, maybe like five to 10 degrees, but enough to affect like your acceleration trying to come around him. Yeah. A little bit. I would say that that probably played less of a factor than the fact that going outside, I just, you literally have to cover more distance. Right. Well, nice job. Do track cyclists (laughs) make more or less power when they're in, like when they're getting sucked into like the corner of a track, if you're racing on like a, like a small, like a two fifty, you're going 60 K an hour. So I am not a track cyclist and I've gotten, I have gotten ripped up on my channel before for saying something about track cycling that I knew nothing about. And it turns out I was wrong. I think I was talking about, I think I was talking about track cyclist crank length. 
because, uh, you know, track cyclists tend to run shorter cranks. And everybody was like, no, dude, you're wrong. They run shorter cranks so that they don't clip their crank on the banking in the corner. And I was like, oh, okay. I guess that makes sense. <laughs> so anyway, take this with a grain of salt. <laughs> but there it uh, is. First idiom of the day. I'm pretty sure that, like, if you look at the power profile from from somebody riding on the track, the power dips in the corner and then goes up in the straight and dips in the corner and goes up in the straight. Um, feel free to correct me if that's incorrect. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I really, I'm just thinking about the physics of it, right? So yeah. you'd be getting, like, pulled into your bike, right? Yeah. In the corners. Yeah. I, I would um, think that would almost make more power, but sort maybe of, the but, position is but too if, weird. I, it, it probably depends on the uh, physical strength of the athlete too. Like if, if you can, if you have enough physical strength, like upper body and core strength that you can, you and your bike become one, then you and your bike are just moving through the bank at, as a unit versus like a compressive unit. Mm-hmm. I don't know why we're even talking about this, but what you just said, Adam, reminds me of some neuroscience nerd talk in that the more we use our tools, the more our brains start to see those tools as an extension of our body. So the more we ride our bikes, literally our brains start to think of our bike as an extension of your body. Mm. It's pretty cool. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know, but I don't know why we're talking about track stuff. None of us are track cyclists. I mean, that's yeah, why, I, like, like if you, if you, like, if you ever, I don't know if, if you guys are experienced at ice skating at all, um, but if, like, if you've ever watched, like, an experienced hockey player on skates, I mean, their, their skates are literally just extensions of their feet. So it's like, they're mm-hmm. not just like, like, the, instantly, it's like they, they can just turn on a dime and, like, I don't know, it's just, it's incredible to watch. Um, as someone who's, like, mm-hmm. moderately ex- experienced at skating, like I watch someone who's like, you know, pro and I'm blown away. Yeah. Wow. Anyways, we should, uh, <laughs> we should move on. Um, Hey Dylan. So I was going to ask you, so you weren't on last week. We kind of covered what the three of us are training for right now, which probably mm-hmm. hasn't changed. I don't think unless drew, um, you're taking some more time off after barrier bay. No, no. Nope. Okay. But I know Dylan's got some exciting stuff coming up so let's can, can you give us a little bit of what you're training for right now hashtag yeah, ltgp <laughs> right. Grand prix. right let's yeah, hear it. so the first lifetime grand prix race is coming up in uh, i don't know a week and a half here um it's the sea otter classic it's gonna be Dude. 80k mountain bike race what i'm putting my money on jeff kabush if he wins yeah oh dude i will know Oh, it man. will be crazy. It will be crazy. That would be so yeah. good. Oh, he's going to talk a lot of smack if he wins. He got like booted off Instagram, right? That would be I mean, pure like he he's going to Oh man. He's going to talk a lot of smack regardless, but if he wins uh, at least, you know, he deserves to talk a lot of smack. <laughs> what would you call that irony? That'd be pure irony. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. I'm kind of rooting for him too. I think that would be, yes. I think that would be super cool if he, you know, didn't get picked for the lifetime grand prix and then beat, beat all the lifetime grand prix riders. So did he not get picked or did he just not submit an application? No, he, 
he submitted, but like there's some there was some questions on there that was like, how are you going to promote the Lifetime Grand Prix? And he he was like, I'm not, I'm not. or something. <laughs> he was straight up, yeah. <laughs> so much respect for him, like, dude. Um, he didn't, he didn't it give real it the goes system. wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right. So. Uh, so yeah, and then I guess he did get booted off of Instagram. Um, I think I think what he said was there were so many people reacting to his post that they thought it was bot activity, hmm. um, which is interesting. Pretty funny. Um, so it was not lifetime That's, Grand Prix. There's that, so like, much irony in that. He, he got more social media traction for basically bashing on the importance of social media. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just something that all of us, you know, everybody kind of is like, yeah, you know, social media is probably a plague on society, but also (laughs) I'm addicted to it. So, (laughs) no, it most certainly is. (laughs) Yes. Um, I mean, you know, it's a plague on society, but I'm going to check Instagram every 10 minutes. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. I'm currently reading a book about the uh, the not the plaguing of social media. It's called yeah. Ham. It's called Hamlet's Back Blackberry. It's a very good. Oh, book. Are we going to start a what you're reading segment? Oh, we should. <laughs> no, dude, this book's so good. I'm devouring <laughs> it. I started it like three days ago, and I'm already like over halfway done. Mm-hmm. Granted, it's only eight pages long, but. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's a picture book. All right, so so Dylan, <laughs> so back to, to the Lifetime Grand Prix. Yeah, sorry. So you got Sea Otter yeah, next I forgot, week. I forgot that we were even talking about Sea Otter. Yeah, <laughs> so Sea Otter's coming up. Uh, I just got my new new mountain bike, and I think by the time this podcast comes out, they will Factor will have already released it. Um, Factor's got a brand new mountain bike. It's called the Lando. Um, so I'm excited to race that thing and try it out. And... Uh, it's been a while since I've done, um, I mean, I guess this isn't an XC mountain bike race. It's a little bit longer, but it's been a very long time since I've done a race that's this style. So I don't know. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. So I've heard it's kind of like old school cross country style where it's mostly like yeah. double track, super fast. Um, winning time will probably be close to three hours. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I, I think that's definitely better for me than a straight up XC race. That's an hour and a half, but um, you know, I think originally they were going to make it either a hundred K or a hundred miles. And I was, I was looking forward to that. Um, but the, they kept shortening it, which is, you know, it's fine. I mean, not every, not every race in the series has to be super long and grueling. They can be, they can be different. So for sure. Yeah. Cool. Well, we look forward to checking back in with you after that. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, you guys want to hop into the topic here? Let's do it. Okay. Top five training mistakes that everyday cyclists make. So we're going to start off just listing each of the top five. Um, they aren't necessarily in any particular order. Um, kind of all weighted fairly equally, but I would say the first one is maybe a, an exception. It's probably the number one 
uh, mistake that we we witness. Um, and these are all coming from just mistakes that we've seen uh, either athletes that we coach make or just general athletes um, within the cycling world um, that we don't we don't coach, but maybe we come across. Um, and just kind of you know observing just the habits of of everyday cyclists. So mistake number one, training too hard too often. Mistake number two, underfueling. Uh, and this goes for on the bike and uh, any other meals that support uh, your training efforts or racing efforts. Uh, number three is chasing the numbers. Um, so, you know, getting too focused on the metrics. Number four, playing into the comparison game, stacking yourself up against others, you know, constantly comparing yourself and your abilities to, to the you know people around you and your training to others. Um, and the last one is, uh, avoiding the gym. So falling into the notion that as a cyclist, you don't need any additional strength, uh, that comes, you know, from off the bike strength training. Um, so it was the top five, uh, we're going to start from the top guys, um, training too hard, too often. What does this even mean? Mm-hmm. Why is training so- too hard, too often a mistake? So, so when I think of this, the thing that I think of specifically or the, the way that this is most commonly manifested in people's training is it's, it's not so much trying to do too many high-intensity sessions in a week, although that's, that's a common problem as well. But in my mind, it's, it's, not, it's riding too hard on your endurance days. You know, so if you have a, you know, a, a training week planned out, you have two easy days, you have five days that are dedicated to, you know, actual workouts. Um, two of your days are high intensity maybe, and then the other three are endurance days. It's, it's very common that I see people, you know, essentially, you know, ride whatever the allotted time is. So let's say they have a three hour endurance ride. They ride that, you know, almost like as a tempo ride you know, which is super, super exhausting. And so then, you know, maybe the next day they have their high intensity session and they're like, Hey coach, I'm, I don't know why, but I'm really tired, <laughs> you know? And so you're, you're sort of like missing the goal of the endurance session and impacting your high intensity sessions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe it's uh maybe we can go into a little bit of why, why going at endurance pace on an endurance day is important. Um, I think there was a, uh, there's a study done by Steven Seiler uh, and his colleagues about um, the stress on your autonomic nervous system and at what intensity your autonomic nervous system gets stressed. And it seems like the uh, first ventilatory threshold, which is, is, you know, kind of the threshold at which you're above, you know, if you're above the first ventilatory threshold, you're above zone two. It seems like that is, is kind of a, you know, a binary marker of, okay, we're over this. So we're stressing our autonomic nervous system or we're under this. So we're not stressing our autonomic nervous system. What they found was that any intensity that riders were doing above that first ventilatory threshold, they were stressing their autonomic nervous system. So, um, if you are doing that day after day after day and you're never giving your autonomic nervous system a break, that's the kind of thing that can lead to, you know, staleness, burnout, overtraining, these sorts of things. 
a yeah, book that I was reading once called that zone, the no man's land where <sighs> you're above endurance or above that, um, first ventilatory, whatever. And then, uh, but you're not quite really like going hard enough to make any significant fitness changes. Like you're not intentionally hitting threshold or VO2. So you just end up riding in this, what they call the no man's land on your easy days and on your hard days. So it's like not good. Right. Well, and I I think the whole thing comes down to, you know, what an athlete's expectations are for, like the post-ride sensations from endurance. I think it's important to say that, and this sort of kind of covers a couple of the topics here actually, but if, if you finish your endurance ride and you're totally smoked, you you either pace the ride too hard or you underfueled it or probably both. And so I think, I think this all comes down to this idea that, you know, you know, in America specifically, we have this really hard work ethic. Like we think more is more. We always want to, outwork our competition. And so that leads us to feeling like if we're not totally smoked after a workout, it like wasn't, it wasn't beneficial. It's, it's you could also be categorized as like the no pain, no gain uh, mentality, but really, I mean, it's just because you're not smoked doesn't mean that it's not working well for you. You know, it's not creating adaptation. And, so and I, think, we should probably, I think that that's a big mistake. Yeah. And we should probably clarify that, uh, no pain, no gain would be correct if we're talking about a high intensity day. On a high intensity day, you do like it when we're saying don't go, you know, don't go hard too often. We're t- we're kind of talking specifically about certain types of workouts, and then there are other types of workouts where you do need to go very hard. And actually, in order to go as hard as you need to go on those workouts, you need to take other other days in the week easy uh, in order to be able to do that. I think one of the, and this fits under this, but a big mistake I used to make personally that kind of fit under this category was not um, getting so focused on today's workout and not really thinking about tomorrow's workout. And so the same thing, like I I would get, uh, you know, hyper-focused on today's workout, like I need to do today as good as possible, but you're not thinking about the consequences that has on your future training, which I think is what we're saying, like don't go so hard today that it compromises your future intensity days. Cause those are the days when we're going to be focusing on actually making gains. Yeah. And this, this actually I think plays out too in like a week by week, um, you know, uh, granularity as well. So it's pretty common that I see, you know, people go into week one of base, for instance, you know, where over the course of a block, you know, we're, we're looking to increase volume or like time and zone over the course of that block. And in the first week they're coming off a rest week, they're the most fresh. So they ride a little harder than they were supposed to, or a little more than they were supposed to. And then by week three, you know, we're not applying progressive overload because they're so tired that they, they end up doing less, less time than (laughs) they did on week one. And, and usually they actually, you know, if I really think about examples of this, it's um, they actually still do end up getting in the volume, but the TSS on week three ends up being less than on week one because they're too tired to ride their hard days as hard as they need to. It sort of sabotage the block. Right. 
Yeah. And I, you know, something that I do to help mitigate this with my athletes is I almost always schedule their intensity days after hopefully a a rest day, or at the very least a recovery day, like a dedicated recovery day, um, just to make sure that there's no like, you know, if I put an endurance day in before their their intensity day, like there's a good chance that they're going to override that inter- endurance ride and then it's going to compromise their uh, intensity day. So I try to just, you know, have athletes do two full rest days a week if we can and then two high intensity days and those intensity days follow that rest day. And sometimes athletes don't like that. You know, they, they get in the mindset that like they have to ride the day before their intensity ride to like open themselves up. But um, I try and just remind them that the the first interval of, of any intensity workout is always going to be a, a kind of a, a scrapped interval anyways. It's just, it's, it's more or less there to just open you up and um, get your body warmed up. So, you know, don't worry about it if you don't feel super fresh for that first, uh, for that first interval. But hopefully by interval three, four, five, uh, you're starting to see your numbers, you know, more steady and, you know, the higher end of your range um, and you're feeling better too. And that's usually the case. Mm-hmm. All right. Number two. All right. Number two. So under fueling um, and, and we, we kind of talked about this would be sort of in two, you know, a couple different ways. So there's like under fueling on the bike, but then there's also under fueling and preparation for your training rides or races. Um, so, you know, what do you guys want to start with? I guess, you know, you want to start with on the bike or pre-workout or, um, we can, we can start with on the bike. Okay. Um, cause I don't think that, I don't think that people realize how much you need to eat when you're, uh, you know, when you're planning to do like a long distance race, for example, I, it, you know, if you're if you're just doing like a, a zone two workout, you obviously you don't need to eat as much because you're not burning as many calories. But uh, if if you're doing anything where bonking is a real possibility, like like any sort of race that's over four or five hours, then it, I think a lot of people just don't realize how much calories you need to take in. Um, there's an upper limit, and that that's probably around ninety grams of carbs per hour. And 90 grams of carbs per hour is a lot of, uh, is a lot of carbohydrates per hour. It's, it's most than most people are taking in. Um, now there's some caveats there. You like in order to get to that 90 grams per hour, you probably have to do a little bit of gut training. Like you need to practice this in your training before you just do it on a race day. And also you, you need to have the correct ratios of, of certain carbohydrates, particularly, you know, maltodextrin to fructose. If you were to just get your carbohydrates from maltodextrin, for example, then the upper limit would probably be closer to 60 grams per hour. Um, so you don't need to be a chemist and like, here's our, here's my maltodextrin, here's my fructose. Let me mix these in the correct ratio. Um, a lot of a lot of you know cycling nutrition companies they already have this correct ratio, but I will say that not all of them do. So and and none of them advertise it uh, except for like Flow Formulas, which is something super cool about them. They're they're like they're advertising that they have this ratio, um, and and they're completely backed by science. Um, so so other companies, for example, like I I do I use Goo Energy Gels. 
And the reason I use goo energy gels is because they have the right ratio. But in order to find out that they had the right ratio, I had to email them and ask them, what is your ratio of multidextrin to fructose? So just something to keep in mind. Yeah. And so, you know, when we think about guidelines for, for rides, one guideline that I, I sort of like to use is kind of like a rough goal. Um, the numbers here work out actually pretty well is trying to consume 50% of your, the calories that you're burning in kilojoules per hour. And so, um, you know, if I'm riding at 200 Watts, um, for one hour, that's 720 kilojoules. So if I try and eat 50% of that, <laughs> I just did the, the math here on my phone while Dylan was talking. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's uh, 360 calories, right? Um, and, and this is just like happy coincidental math. That's, uh, that equates to 90 grams of carbohydrate. Mm-hmm. Right. So like even at just 200 Watts, you know, maybe that's a lot for some people, but it's, it's, it's not going to be a lot for others, you know, um, you know, you're, you're already at the maximum that you can, you can absorb via at least carbohydrates. Right. I have so a it's, funny story about the, yeah. uh, what you just said, like 50% of your calories. The first time I did the mid South back when it was called the land run, it was like my first gravel event first big one and i was with amanda nauman who's like two-time dk 200 winner um like she knows her stuff she's been around the block when it comes to gravel and the night before the race she's like what are you gonna eat eat in the race tomorrow i was like i don't know bananas and i got some uh you know some bars and she's like yeah but like what are you going to eat and i'm like what do you mean she's like you need to write it down hour by hour so she sat down with a piece of paper and she pulled up one of my training workouts and we yeah it was like almost exactly the same it's like 750 an hour and she had said one third as like a minimum of calories per hour so we did the math and i wrote out hour by hour exactly what i was going to eat and then i put all my food in each pocket so like first hour was this pocket second hour was the middle pocket third hour was this pocket and i made sure i eat i was eating each pocket every hour to stay on top of my nutrition and the next That's day awesome. I got third in a three up sprint against Pacey McElvian and Ted King. Like I was a hundred percent convinced of Amanda's Jedi ways and her calorie counting because I was like, yeah, that works. Yeah. So I think, I think that brings up a good point, Drew. So that, you know, you talked about like you were going to eat like gummy bears and granola bars and, you know, just random stuff from the gas station probably, right. That you could pick up anywhere. Um, yeah. Hey, well, real I, quick, let's not knock gummy bears. First ingredient, no, no, gummy bears are, no, no, I'm not, I'm not knocking gummy Airbus bears. Yeah. So is, is what I'm saying though is that does gummy the bears, yeah. the nutritional the the content of what you're bringing in. I mean, it goes back to you know Dylan's talking about like if you're trying to maximize like 90 grams of carbohydrates an hour, maybe it does matter what ratio you're using as far as you know glucose to fructose or maltodextrin. Um, but what you're saying is like eating something is better than nothing. Right. And, and being calculated with what you're eating. Um, so, you know, if, if you're not a sports nutrition fan, if you just, you know, if you don't want to spend the money on sports specific products um, or if you don't have access to it um, or you just don't want to be eating all that sugar all the time. It's always better to just be eating something that, you know, that that's fueling your ride than than to just forego it altogether. Um, so that can be a mix of just 
granola bars and gummy bears. And that's awesome. Like those are perfect ride fuel. You don't, you don't have to have a, you know, sports specific branded nutrition. Hey, let me, let me Uh, throw out kind of a a fun thing that I learned recently. (laughs) mm. So, uh, you can actually sort of dial in your nutrition based on the the ripeness of a fruit. So like with bananas, for instance, the greener the banana is, the more the sugars are starchy, they're more mm-hmm. complex. They're going to provide maybe like uh, like more sustained energy. And then the riper it gets, the more it's broken down into uh, um, uh, monosaccharides. You know, they're going to be like quick, quicker, quicker energy. Mm-hmm. So depending on what sort of workout you're doing, so like if you're going to do an endurance ride, you might choose the greener banana. <laughs> if you're doing an interval workout, you might choose like a really ripe banana. And you Dude, can we were, taste it. Oh, we yeah. were down in Tennessee a couple weeks ago and we were at the store and I was like, oh, we need bananas. And I looked under the table and found some like real green ones. And uh, back to Kyle Perry, uh, another ignition coach. He's like, are you sure about that? Those look like pretty green. And I was like, no, nah, man, I love the green ones. And we get home and I couldn't even open it because it was so <laughs> green. It was like a rock. It was so hard. I'm like, oh my gosh. He was making fun of me all weekend. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure that you can, uh, uh, like there are certain vegetables that whether they're cooked or raw, it changes the amount of calories that can be absorbed. Uh, mm-hmm. so, well, that's like the whole essence of cooking things, right? It's like, Right. Making foods more bioavailable. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think so going back to ride nutrition, I think it's probably a good time to bring up uh, fasted training because this is a topic that people like to ask about a lot, whether they should be including fasted training in their riding or not. Um, I've looked into the research on fasted training and it's, I will say that it's super mixed. There's a lot of studies that show no benefit whatsoever to fasted training. And then there are a few that show that there might be a benefit. And the ones that show that there's a possible benefit, uh, I think what they do is they call it the sleep low method where uh, they'll do a high intensity training day and, and they'll ride in the afternoon do high intensity, and then they'll consume very little carbohydrates afterwards uh, for dinner that night or just after the ride in general. So they're sleeping on low carbohydrate availability, and then they wake up the next morning and go do a fasted ride. So so presumably they have very little uh, carbohydrates available to them at that point. And, and that actually has been shown to be somewhat effective. Um. So I think the key there is that if you're going to attempt to do fasted training, it the fasted rides need to be the low-intensity ones. Do not try to do fasted high-intensity rides. And also what I'll say is, because I've tried fasted training, and um, there, there are just certain people that don't operate well if they don't have breakfast. I, I include myself in that category. And anytime I've done a fasted training ride, I mean, the ride, you know, I don't feel great on the ride, which, you know, I guess is kind of the point. But when I get back from the ride, I could eat my entire refrigerator. I am so hungry. Um, I know there are other people that, you know, they can take or leave breakfast. In fact, there's a lot of people that just, you know, they skip breakfast and that, that's their normal routine. Maybe that would work better for them. But uh, there are a few things in practice that 
that uh, it, it may not work for everyone. I feel like the big hype behind fasted rides, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, is this whole idea of using fat for fuel. And I, my opinion on fat for fuel is pretty simple. Um, it's not our body's preferred fuel source. Uh, like your body almost always is going to prefer carbs over fat. Um, even at an endurance pace, it's still like 50, 50 carbs and fat. Uh, so even on an endurance ride, your body is still using carbs. So my opinion is, or my thought process is unless you're going to be in a race situation where you don't have carbs available and you will be having to like ride on from your body's fat, fat sources, um, why would you, yeah, why would you limit it in training? Like if, if, if carbs are going to help you to train harder and then, in the middle of a race, you're going to have access to carbs. Then, um, yeah, I just don't see the point. I think I think there is like poor language has been spread throughout the cycling community about fat for fuel, and uh, and I, I think a lot of riders get get too focused on that aspect, and then they I don't know they're just, they're so focused on that that they don't they're getting lost in the forest for the trees because they get so focused on the fat for fuel that it's like, no, that's not the main thing. The main thing is like carbs, focus on carbs. Well, I think maybe more what it comes down to, or the, the big take home lesson for me on that topic is, is that it, it, well, it is good to use fat as fuel while you're riding because you're not limited to like this finite number of you know, glycogen storage and liver, liver glycogen. And, you know, you're not bound by that 90 grams an hour rule, right? So if you want to ride super, super long and you have, you know, maybe you're a big person, you can put out a ton of Watts, like you're just inevitably sort of going to run out of fuel if you're solely relying on carbohydrates, because it's also limited. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I think the way to improve your fat oxidizing capacity this goes back to mistake number one is to try and raise that first ventilatory threshold. So what happens specifically at that first ventilatory threshold? And the reason why we can use the talk test on rides is because as the body begins to burn more sugars, um, there's more CO2 that needs to be exhaled. And so that's why we have to start breathing harder um, we have to take longer breaths and exhale harder and, and all that. So that's, that's specifically what's happening. But if we can push up that VT1, LT1 kind of point, then we can do more watts, um, you know, while oxidizing. And burn less carbs, right? That's burn less saying. carbs, yeah. And it's yeah. like a glycogen sparing thing, right? So like, mm-hmm. you know, if we think about like Crotan 150, um, you know, if you imagine, you know, more guys are coming to the line. Um, it's probably not going to be like, who's the best sprinter that's going to win. It's going to be the person who, you know, has, uh, spared the most glycogen, just has the most left in the tank, right? It's like a function of fatigue resistance, you know, and if Ian Boswell can only do a thousand Watts in a sprint, I don't, I don't know what he can do, but, um, it's probably accurate actually. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, like if he, you know, has just been burning fat all day you know, he's going to be able to do 100% of his 1000 Watts. 
And if I'm right. there, you know, and I have a, a lower LT1 because I ride too hard on my endurance days, you know, but I can do 1500 watts fresh, you know, maybe I can only do 900 watts after 150 miles of depleting my glycogen. Yeah, right. He's going to win. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's an important uh, thing to bring up is that like, if, if you, I, th- I think people that try to implement fasted riding into their training overlook the fact that there is a ceiling to which that they can ride at, you know, dirt for that or to which they should ride for that ride. Um, and it's pretty well below that VT one, that ventilatory ventilatory threshold one um, for most people, because most people are not very well fat adapted. So it's probably going to be even below that. Like their like glycogen stores are going to start getting depleted even below that VT one. Um, so it's, yeah, in you know, if you, if you're overriding a fasted ride, I mean, you're going to be smoked by the end. And subsequent training days are going to be compromised for sure. Um, but Drew, I think going you know going back to your point, you were you know you were talking about like the preferred method of you know of, of energy you know or fuel sourcing. Um, I, it really does depend on the type of racing you're doing. You know, if if you're mm-hmm. doing a super ultra endurance uh event like a you know trying to break an fkt on the appalachian trail or something like uh you know the tour divide you know 2600 mile gravel bike race um you're probably going to need to rely more on fat burning because you just cannot eat enough food to to support Mm. uh you know the replenishment of your of your glycogen stores um, but you're also going to yeah. be riding super slow for that entire duration versus something like, you know, a Mid-South um, for sure, or even like a, uh, you know, looking at Unbound 200 miles, you're in a, you're naturally at times going to be over the that VT1 level where you're going to be depleting glycogen stores at some point if you want to be at the front of the race at least. You know, it's different mm-hmm. if you're just trying to finish it, um, but if you're trying to race it at the front, um, so you do have to have a good mix of both, you know, like Andrew said, like if yeah. the higher your VT one, the more fat burning, um, potential you have, uh, the easier it is to stay on top of your glycogen, uh, repletion, but, um, or yeah, replenishment. I, I, um, but, yeah. um, but still the preferred, you know, like if you're talking like fast, you know, what is going to get you to the f- line, the fastest, um, the shorter, the duration, the more, uh, you know, tendency there is to lean on the glycogen stores. Yeah, I guess what I was saying was just the language of like fat for fuel, um, quote unquote, makes it sound like it's either 100% carbs or 100% fat. And even at a super low intensity, it's still, you're still going to be using both carbs and fat. Um, It's just that the harder you go, the more more it starts to shift to carbs. But yeah, you guys are totally right. Uh, When you get into long distance stuff, it's totally more dependent on fat, but it's not totally dependent on fat. You know, like you're still going to be using both, which I think the language is just off there. I would agree that probably most people there, not most people there are, there's a contingent of endurance racers that are probably over focusing on it. And they're also probably the, the kind of people that are prone to trying like a ketogenic or, or a low carb diet of some sort which I don't know if we have enough time to go into that there. We've already been talking about this particular topic for a while. Maybe that's a topic for a whole nother podcast, but 
I, I would agree with that. There, there's a certain contingent of endurance racers that do kind of over-focus on that aspect. So do you, do you think that those athletes are potentially the athletes who might be chasing the numbers as well, which is our third mm. mistake? <laughs> <Good> transition. <laughs> they definitely could be, yeah. Um, this, this athlete, is it's all the same person. They just make all the mistakes at once. It's like a whole right. thing. They make it's all the possible. mistakes. Yeah, so that, so number three. that takes us into number three, yeah, chasing the numbers. Um, Drew, what, what do we mean by chasing the numbers? Mm. Um, so this, this goes back to like those Training Peaks nerds. Um, we call them the metrics. But if you go into Training Peaks, you've got your CTL, which is your chronic training load used to be called ctl i think now uh training fitness fitness. Even dumb, i think they've even just dumbed it down to fitness which um in my opinion is stupid uh you cannot <laughs> put one number on your fitness i was having this conversation with somebody yesterday like you could have a real like fitness is not summed up in one number if it was that simple I, amen like i would be all about it but your fitness is not just one single number uh, if your CTL, so he, so here's my theory. And if you were going to try to do the number system, this is how it would have to go down is you should have a, a fitness, like an aerobic fitness, a VO2 fitness, a threshold fitness, because if two riders have a hundred, one, a 100 numbered fitness, whatever that number is, 100, you know, like some, we have to go back to like some dude just made up this algorithm. So, um, if your fitness is at 100, but you've never done any high intensity, you're probably not going to win any races. Uh, but if your fitness is at 100 and you've done a bunch of high intensity, then yeah, maybe you might win some races. So how you accumulate those numbers matters. And so getting hyper-focused on those numbers is is just a pitfall for disaster um, to like sum it up because you're just going to get hyper-focused on chasing those numbers. And again, back to number one, you're probably going to end up training harder than you should on days when you shouldn't because instead of being focused on what is the goal of this workout, you're getting focused on, I just want this number to be higher. And which one really matters when it comes to race day? It's going right. to, that number isn't going to, who gives a rip if your CTL is 150 and you finish last? Uh, I'm putting my money on the guy who's got a 50 CTL and who has done the proper training, you know, like that's, we just getting focused on that is, is just a not, not good. Well, yeah. And and here's another thing too, is that we have to take these metrics with a grain of salt because Mm -hmm. you know, the accuracy of those numbers is contingent upon having your FTP set correctly, which is, you know, at any given time, maybe it is 100% accurate, but it's it's sort of a moving target. And, you know, especially as we kind of get into the race season and we have less time or energy to do, you know, FTP tests or, you know, maybe in the case of athletes who, um, you know, aren't as skilled at doing an FTP test, you know, maybe, maybe we, we don't have as much confidence in that number. And so, you know, if your FTP is set too high, then we're underestimating TSS for all of your workouts. And therefore your CTL is, you know, different than it, than it actually is. Um, you know, and then conversely, if it's set too low, then we're, you know, we have this humongous CTL, but it's, it's not, it's, it's not a true representation of, of where our fitness is at. So, you know, it's, you know, we can do our best to sort of estimate these things and be accurate, but, 
there's always going to be some small amount of inaccuracy in there. And so chasing the numbers is sort of a fool's errand. Also, we've been talking about CTL for the past couple of minutes here, but somebody getting too obsessed with numbers, it doesn't necessarily have to be CTL. It could be, could be FTP, could be TSS per ride, could be kilojoules per ride, could be, you know, there's a, there's, there's a lot of different numbers that people get stuck in their head that seem to matter a lot to them. Um, sometimes that's justified. Like say you're training for a race that ends with a 20 minute climb, then your, your 20 minute power test probably matters quite a bit, but there are a lot of people that put a whole lot of emphasis on their 20 minute power that, you know, maybe that, that 20 minute power is not necessarily applicable to whatever they're training for. Um, so chasing numbers does not just mean chasing CTL. I mean, it could, there, there's, there's a lot of numbers that you could potentially be chasing that could, you know, overly obsessing about them could be undermining your training. And I think if you're going in this regard, you've got to be, everything has to point back to performance. So, uh, if you're chasing CTL, if you're chasing FTP, if you're even changing the, chasing the, the numbers on the scale, uh, all of those things have to go back to your main goal is performance. So if I'm going to chase this, but it my performance is going down at the same time, then it's probably not worth it. You probably just need to forego that whatever chasing of number and focus more on performance. Well, and it right. goes back to what we were saying about training too hard, where a lot of people have this more is better sort of mentality, right? And people approach, I know we've focused a lot on this, but like, with CTL or FTP, more isn't always better. You know, maybe you're a, like a track cyclist or a criterium racer, you know, where there's like a certain minimum amount of freshness that you need to, to perform the, the high intensity efforts there. Or maybe your aim is to, you know, not, um, you know, may, maybe if you take a rider who's like really, you know, pretty anaerobically gifted, they have like a high glycolytic capacity, you know, and then, you know, they're obsessed with raising their FTP, then maybe they lose the thing that's their strength. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think we have to remind, you know, our athletes or just, you know, if you're just listening, you don't have a coach remind yourself is like, w- w- why are you training? Um, most of us are training f- to compete in bike races. Right. Um, and if, if you chasing numbers causes you to forgo, certain bike races because you're not fit enough. You know, you don't have enough, you know, high enough CTL or you, you haven't gotten your 20 minute threshold above four Watts per kilo, or like you're, you're just waiting for a certain number to determine that you're finally ready to start racing. Um, again, I think you're, was it missing the forest for the trees? Like you're too focused on the, the, the one metric. Um, and it's preventing you from going out and doing the thing that you came here to do in the first place, which is race your bike. Um, so anyone out there who, who thinks that they, you know, that there's some metric that must be achieved before you can, you know, finally start your bike race season, um, you're probably missing out on some, some good times. Is this a good rabbit hole into the idiom of the day? We've already said it a couple of times, but I'm going to drop it here. It's the cannot Take it with see a grain th- of salt, right? No, no, no. That's, <laughs> come on, man. You're killing it. No, today's idiom of the day is you cannot see the wood for the trees, which that's the original phrasing. But yeah, in North what America, is, what is singular here? So yes, wood. <laughs> but we've changed it 
in North America to you cannot see the forest for the trees because we no longer call for a forest the wood. But yeah, this is to fail to grasp the main issue because of overattention to details. You cannot see the forest for the trees. Ooh, yeah. idiom of the day. Well, that sums up number three pretty seamlessly. Uh, let's move on to the comparison game. Uh, so this is when athletes are constantly comparing themselves to something else. Maybe it's their past self. Maybe it's their friend across the street. Um, maybe it's their favorite pro rider. Um, it could be anything. Um, but constantly comparing yourself to something else and you know, allowing that to distract you from the, the goal and trajectory that you're currently on. Yeah, uh, I think it's a good time to bring up uh, Scott McGill, who's one of our ignition coaches. Uh, he he was my roommate for a while, and we talked about this all the time, about how you can't compare power numbers between two riders. And Scott is a perfect example of that. I think he he went out and did an FTP <clears throat> test, and his 20-minute his was like... Three eleven or three fifteen or something, which for a lot of people that's that's a very that's a very solid number. But Scott is racing at a you know a he's a he's a pro he's a pro road racer uh, three hundred and ten ten watt twenty minute power for a pro road racer is not very high. But on the t- on the team that he was on, he was the one getting the results mainly because his sprint was so good and and I think that he's he probably knows how to position himself really well in a group um, and he he can really make that 310 watts work for him but you know there there were riders on the team that had you know 60 70 80 more watts on their FTP than he did and somehow he's the one getting the results um and and you see this all the time. Riders are are bragging about certain power numbers on either Strava or, or other social media sites. Um, and maybe maybe you have to go up against those riders at a certain race. That is not that is not the end all be all. Um, there there's there's a lot of factors in bike racing that is not just just power numbers. Yeah, you know, and it's it's funny. So there's this this old saying about and maybe it's not even an old saying maybe it's a new saying actually but it's 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 however long you're given to do a certain task is exactly how long it's going to take and i mm-hmm. think this applies to ftp as well if you have a race uh you know whatever your threshold is like you're going to use the majority of that threshold in in, in the race and, and maybe have the same result so I know this is a bit of a convoluted analogy, but you know, if one guy has a 400 watt FTP and I have a 300 watt FTP and we do the same criterion, there's not a specific number that it takes to finish that crit. I'm going to do 300 watts average and he's going to do 400 watts average and maybe I'll even win. <laughs> so it's, mm-hmm. you know, it, it doesn't necessarily, those numbers aren't going to necessarily dictate your performance because to Dylan's point about Scott, there's so much to be said for efficiency, pacing, uh, you know, like, you know, tactics, you know, and then other, other metrics like, you know, your sprint, your anaerobic capacity. And, and, uh, you know, none of this even is kind of considering differences in power meters. Right. Like, yeah, we can do a very straightforward test. Right. Um, 
you know, like maybe you have a climb that involves zero pacing. It's just like a, a steady 8% grade for 10 minutes, you know, and we can do the same Watts per kilo according to our power meters and, and finish differently and finish at different times. Yeah. So like there's, there's, there's some inherent differences there. There's differences in power meters. And also I would say that, uh, P- don't uh, d- don't underestimate how much somebody is fudging their numbers um if you if you ever ask somebody how much they weigh whatever number they tell you you could probably add five to ten pounds onto that <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> if you ever ask somebody what their ftp is you could probably subtract 10 watts from that or more honestly uh it's you know that i've 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 seen velo news articles written about pros doing certain watts per kilogram and uh and i you know i'm not i'm not gonna i'm not gonna name names here but i know that that person does not weigh what velo news is claiming they weigh uh they may have put out that power because they literally have the power file right there but they do not weigh that much well another thing too that's like often not considered is watts per cda right yeah like yeah maybe you're really skinny but you have like you know, super ginormous, broad shoulders, where you just you sit like up. You just sit yeah. upright, like you. Yeah, you know, you're like you don't a big attempt sail. to get arrow at all. You just, you know, you're like a sail on the bike. Yep. Yeah, you might have a big guy who's like uh, really narrow shoulders, wide hips, super good hamstring flexibility. Mm-hmm. You know, so playing the, the so playing the comparison game is uh, it, it kind of resonates with me on a personal level because there was a season where I don't, I don't know if I should say who it is but a competitor of mine <laughs> in cyclocross he was on a tear man like I mean I probably should mention him because he was he just had a killer season and I up to that point is Tobin Ortenblad up to that point <laughs> me and Tobin were like neck <laughs> neck and neck I had beat him like if you wouldn't put us up against each other in a race, I probably would have beat him most most times out of like nine times out of ten, I probably would have beat Toby. But but we both kind of upgraded or or not upgraded, but had like what's the word? Not upgrade, graduated into uh the pro ranks and he adapted to the pro ranks a lot quicker than I did. And he just for one season was like killing me. Um and I found myself stuck, like for a whole season, stuck into this comparison game of like, man, I used to beat Tobin, what the heck? And I'm constantly looking at like his social media, his power numbers. I'm like, and so it's like, at the end of the day, that wasn't helping me at all. <laughs> like not one bit of me always looking at Tobin and thinking like, why is he beating me and being jealous and envious? And like, I wish I had his level of support, like at the end of the day, I got to do what I got to do with what I got, you know, like who, I don't care about Tobin in California. Like I need to do what I need to here in Kentucky and get the job done and focus on myself. Um, and so this is like another back to like why social media is plaguing the world is like, it's hard to do that when you constantly see everybody's best on social media, like nobody's posting their worst on social media. It's always like, look how good I am and look how perfect this is. And so like you get this misconstrued idea of how good somebody is because of their social media presence. But like, that's just surface level, you know, like everybody's got issues. Everybody's got like other things going on. It's not so perfect. So yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I got to do, uh, 
what's best for me. And like, I got to do my training the way I got to do it and how I know how it works. So at the end of the day, like comparing yourself to others is just probably going to put you in an unhealthy spot. Yeah. And I, 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 so I brought up, you know, comparing yourself to yourself also as a, you know, potential scenario. Um, cause that can happen from time to time too. Like, you know, last season you hit an all time PR for your thresholds this year, you know, you're a couple percent below that. But if you get so focused on just trying to raise your FTP back to where it was, and that compromises your ability to make the adaptations you need for your upcoming races, you know, like Dylan was talking about, you're probably not doing a race where your 20 minute threshold is actually the, you know, the, the main factor in your overall performance at the end of the race. Um, there's a lot more, you know, nuances that go into it. So if you're constantly just focused on trying to raise your FTP, you might overlook some of those higher intensity efforts that you need to be training prior to that event. And that's going to hold you back more than, you know, that couple percent below your all time FTP PR on your best day ever. Um, all right. So let's, uh, let's get into the last one. Uh, mistake number five that athletes, cyclists, everyday cyclists make, um, avoiding the gym. So, you know, this goes probably back into more like traditional mindset, uh, especially road racing, um, where the, the mindset was always, you needed to be super lean as small as possible, super focused on power to weight ratio. And what that meant was you couldn't be carrying any around carrying around any extra uh, upper upper body or, or even just lower body um, excess you know muscle and um, bulkiness. What right, do you guys think about that? Dylan, go ahead, go ahead and spit off all the articles. Let's hear them. Come on, <laughs> I know you got like twenty memorized. Let's hear them. Why strength no, training? Have... Why strength training? Why every single person on a bike needs to strength train? Right. Yeah, I have this whole every spiel. Alive. <laughs> I have this whole spiel that I. I, I don't know how many times I've said it at this point. Um, probably, probably fifty times. <laughs> I've heard it. I've heard it many, many times. But it's good. About, I mean, like, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. excited to hear it again right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so you know, there's. Uh, I guess it's, you know, for for weight training critics who are cyclists. Um, that are, are critical whether or not cyclists need to go into the gym. Um, this is this is kind of the the talking points that I use. So when you're a when you're a new lifter and you first get into the gym, um, you could dramatically increase the amount of weight you can lift in a relatively short amount of time. Like for example, let's say you can, I don't know, squat a, just for the sake of argument. Let's say you can squat a hundred pounds on your first day in the gym, and then two months later, you can squat 200 pounds and you quite literally doubled your strength. Uh, but your quads are not twice as big. In fact, they're probably not very much, not much bigger at all. So where is all this extra strength coming from? Like how, how can you lift twice as much weight, but your, you know, your quads are roughly the same size. Um, it's from being able to recruit more motor units when you're when you're lifting, um, and also your muscles aren't fighting each other. So for example, when your quads are firing, uh, your hamstrings are not also firing, which would hurt your lift, obviously. Um, 
So these neuromuscular adaptations that you make um, in order to be able to physically lift more weight, it turns out that these same neuromuscular adaptations also translate into increased power on the bike as well. So, you know, being able to fire more motor units, um, that, that, that translates into more power on the bike as well. And, and this is a lot of people sometimes when they're talking about lifting for cycling, they think, okay, well that, you know, that's obviously good for a sprinter. You'll be able to sprint better, but I'm trying to raise my FTP. They've done, they've done studies on, they've done a lot of studies on at this point on how lifting affects cycling performance. And I want to say that almost all of them with very few exceptions shows that lifting improves cycling performance. And that's for sprinting performance. That's for your five minute max power. That's for your 20 minute max power. That's for 40 kilometer time trail. That's for time to exhaustion. It is not just your sprint. It's, it's also your FTP as well. Um, and, and it really comes down to that neuromuscular recruitment because lifting is not an aerobic activity. So it's not really increasing your VO two max, but it is, uh, it is increasing your strength, obviously, and that that has an impact on on the power that you're able to produce when you're on a bike. Just for clarification, the word I know this is like a really cool word, neuromuscular. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, that is just the communication between your brain and your muscles. So when you do strength training, what we're saying is you're improving your brain's communication with the muscles. Meaning, what Dylan said you're able to use your muscles more efficiently because not because they're stronger. Um, they probably are, but more so because your brain is sending clearer messages to those muscles to work in a more unified, um, push. Or, right. or you're, you're sending more messages or, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you have, you have a greater neural drive is, is like the scientific term for it. Meaning that we're sending, you know, like a greater amount or strength of action potential to the right specific muscles mm-hmm. um, to fire like more or larger motor units, like Dylan said. It's like when you start lifting, you're like on an unpaved, bumpy road. And the more you do it, it just, <laughs> it's like putting on that new asphalt, like, ooh, all those muscles are just. Right, that's a fire. great analogy. So <laughs> I, I, you know, I, the. I'm just, I'm just kind of, um, these numbers are sort of off the top of my head. These are not necessarily real numbers, but like, let's say somebody who has never lifted before, they're going to perform a max squat. Like they may be using 60% of the, the motor units that they have available to them. Whereas somebody who is a very experienced lifter is, it could, you know, if they're doing a max squat, they could potentially be using almost all, all their motor units to, uh, do do that max squat so that's actually a good thing because if you're an inexperienced lifter and and you're you know you're using that much um that many motor units to lift something you're probably going to hurt yourself uh so this is actually a good thing that this occurs but it's just it just kind of shows you that you know as as you get more experience with lifting i mean the reason Muscles do get bigger eventually, but most of the reason why you're able to lift more is not because your muscles are bigger, but it's actually because um, the neurons are sending more signals for more motor units to be activated and therefore lift more weight. 
Yeah. So, and I think part yeah. of the reason you're bringing that up is because, you know, if, if you're someone who is, you know, hyper-focused on maintaining a certain body composition and especially weight, um, you might avoid the gym because you don't want to get bigger muscles. You don't want to step on the scale and see a higher number for your uh, body mass. Um, but what you're getting at, Dylan, is that you can improve your strength uh, without even increasing your uh, volume of, of musculature, um, or you're probably going to even improve your body composition if you're, you know, if you're actually looking at um, like you know body fat percentages um, by going to the gym um, without even increasing or affecting your overall body mass. Um, so it's just it's just cool that you can, you know, that for any of those people who are afraid of of you know bulking up too much in the gym, especially in their upper body, um, that you can you can get a lot stronger without even increasing your muscle mass. I well, think the reason yeah. people like people doubt how smart our bodies are. Like if you're doing if you're doing 10 hours of aerobic exercise on your bike a week, but you're supplementing two hours in the gym, which I think those are probably good estimate numbers, like an average 10, 10 hours of bike riding, two hours in the gym. What's your body gonna what what is your body going to adapt itself to be better at? The two hours in the gym or the 10 hours on the bike? Your body's gonna naturally want to make its composition the best for what you're doing the most of. And in that case, you're doing more aerobic training than you are strength training. So the two hours of your body's just naturally going to be more lean because it knows, okay, this person's more of an aerobic athlete. Like, so that we need to make sure we're focused on that. So if you do, if your composition does change, it's not going to be huge. Like, I think we just, we undermine how good our bodies at, how good our bodies are at finding that optimal composition. Well, it's, it's like an evolutionary priority, right? So like the, the body is always designed to be more efficient. And the truth is, is that putting on muscle is super costly, like metabolically, like to, to increase your mass requires a ton of energy. So your body is sort of a little bit resistant to do that unless it truly has sort of like an abundance of fuel coming in. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's almost, if you're riding enough, it's like hard to eat enough. It's hard to be at like a caloric surplus, you know, as we kind of discussed earlier, you know, it's like we can only take in, you know, 50% of the kilojoules burned on that 200 watt hour, you know? So it's, the equation is really, you know, favorable for not undergoing hypertrophy. Um, the other thing too, is that, um, you know, larger, larger fibers, um, you know, type two fibers are going to be less efficient. They're going to use, they're going to be much more glycolytic in nature and, you know, burn a lot more energy. So the body is, is just going to prioritize efficiency. So it's, it's definitely hard to put on, put on mass if you're riding a lot. Hmm. Um, I think that we could probably go really in depth on this topic about when you should be lifting and uh and how you should be lifting and and what lifts are the best and and the the number of sets and the number of reps and and i mean you you can go very in depth on this topic i don't know if we have time for that but that should probably be an entire podcast in itself yeah i think yeah, you know today that. we just wanted to you know give a little bit of an overview of some of the common mistakes that we've witnessed as coaches um for anyone out there listening if you found yourself falling into any of these categories that we've touched on training too hard too often, underfueling your rides, 
chasing the numbers comparison game or, you know, not getting into the gym. Um, we'd love to hear from you and see like, you know, if, if there's this one of these topics that you want us to touch on more extensively, uh, then we can definitely dedicate an entire show to each of these. I mean, they're, they're expansive topics. Um, we don't want to go into that kind of detail today. So I think we're going to try and wrap that up or wrap this episode up here. Um, anything else you guys wanted to add as far as like, you know, closing tips at all, um, for any athletes out there. I'm going to do a shameless, shameless company, uh, plug here. Um, it's just a good idea to have a coach, um, on all fronts. Like if you have somebody like looking over what you're doing, it helps, um, to make sure you don't fall into one of these categories of a mistake, you know, like that's the thing about a mistake is you probably don't even realize you're making it until somebody points it out to you. So if all you're doing is, is you yourself in a box, um, with no outside input, then, then yeah, you could probably be falling into several mistakes that could be, uh, maximal gains if you were to correct them. And so, I'm going to drop it. Ignition Coach Co. We'll, we'll get you connected with a top-notch science-based coach um, who knows about what's up about with science, with training, with coaching. Um, yeah. Well, you know, and it's, it's, it's funny because I'm of the belief that even coaches need coaches. You know, it's like a practice what you preach sort of thing, but it's, it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's like, I think it's, even those of us who, you know, recognize these common pitfalls or mistakes that people make, make those mistakes themselves, you know, like, yeah, there's definitely times where I'm thinking to myself, like, you know, oh, I should ride this harder or eat less. You know, it's like, there's a reason why so many people fall into these mistakes is because it's easy to do. Um, it's easy to, mm-hmm. to kind of get bogged down in the details or get, you know, get obsessive, um, you know, in, in search of, search of those gains. Um, so you, you know, you might be thinking like, Oh, I would never make these mistakes, but it's, it's, it's really easy to do. I mean, it's like a, it's the slope is angled towards making the mistakes. So yeah. Hire a coach. Yeah. I think hire hire an ignition coach. (laughs) I mean, hire any coach really. Yeah. The the only thing that I was going to say is that uh, I was actually talking about this before we started recording and and everybody was like, save it for the recording. Um, Mm -hmm. And I forgot to talk about it. So I'll I'll say it now is that, you know, um, I think someone had brought up that their athletes, uh, maybe Andrew, it was you that your athletes love the gym and all they want to do is gym training. And they're like, can we do three days a week instead of two days a week? Um, so uh, the thing that I was saying is that some of these, uh, I guess you could look at them as a spectrum and, you know, on one end, there's the person that loves going to the gym and they're probably going to go to the gym way too much. And on the other end, there's, there's the person that hates going to the gym and they, they struggle to go to the gym and they don't want to go to the gym. Um, and the same could be said for the person who's overly obsessed about numbers versus the person who looks at no numbers at all they just go out and ride their bike by feel every single time (laughs) um so some of these are kind of a spectrum um but i would say that the way that we covered it today is is how it you know the extreme of the spectrum that that we usually see riders fall into that that is a problem for their training is what i'll say 
Yeah, they can get all go the other way for sure. Uh, yeah. Although the one one caveat to that is I'll say, well, two things. Um, on the first note, I, I think it's it's very very rare that people ride an endurance ride too easy. That's like a mistake that very few people make. You know, so long as it's sufficiently long. Uh, for sure. Pe- pe- people just like aren't really doing that. Um, and the second thing is, there's probably nobody out there who's eating too much on the bike. Because it's right. it's really the, the harder thing to do. I mean, it's there are people I, I who are eating too much in general, but but probably sure. not on the bike. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Come on, man. You didn't have to like sh- point point it out that obvious. What do you think? I'm talking about you. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> cool. Sweet. Is that a wrap? That's a wrap. Shut it down. Mm. All right, folks, thanks for tuning in for the latest episode of the Matchbox Podcast. Like I said at the beginning, you can send any questions or topic suggestions to info at ignitioncoachco.com with email titled the Matchbox Podcast. Links to each of our social media pages can be found in the show notes. Tune in next week for another endurance training-related discussion and learn about how you can find that extra match for your next big event. Catch you all soon. Let's go! Let's go!